Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. How many people can say that they've been involved with the following? They were in the hotel room moments after David and Victoria Beckham got engaged, have been the Director of Communications in 10 Downing Street, and have also been in prison. Andy, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Great to be here. Good to see you, Jimmy. So I was thinking about the first time we met, and I was a fresh-faced graduate, wet behind the ears in 2010, working as probably what could be best described on the Tory general election campaign as a runner. And it was the night of the first TV debates in Granada Studios, and Liz Sugg gave me the very clear directions of, you need to go and get Andy Coulson, George Osborne, and Oliver Dowden from the green room, and you need to make sure that they don't get attacked by the eight-foot fox that somebody is dressed out of <laughs> outside, outside. And you need and you need to do this, and you cannot enter into a debate with them. You just need to tell them to do it. What you say. Yes. And I honestly, as as daunting Tasco for uh, a fresh faced grad, that uh, that struck me. So I was wondering, because um, it was obviously quite a momentous night in British politics, because it was the mm. first ever televised debate. And I'd love to know what was said in that green room just beforehand as you were leaving David Cameron to his, his final thoughts. But then also, you know, how do you think those televised debates have changed British politics? It's funny to hear you remind me of the fox. I'm also immediately reminded of the fact that we had people in giant chicken suits throughout that election as well, that we had to kind of navigate our way around. Uh, It was a big night. It was an important night. It came after a tremendous amount of work, actually, and preparation, obviously not just for the debate in terms of, you know, how David would handle himself in this kind of new environment. But also getting the debates done was a, was a process of very long, very painful negotiation. And there were very mixed views about it within the team. You, you'll probably remember this, Jimmy. But, uh, and there still are mixed views, by the way. But the debates or the introduction of TV debates actually is one of the things I'm proudest of in the time that I worked in politics. Because, um, you know, I, I had the first conversation with, it was actually Sky who led the process. I sat down with, with, with Sky TV many, many months before that, and they said, look, we, th- we feel it's time for TV debates to be introduced in this country. And my instinctive reaction, you know, perhaps because I'm, you know, I'm a journalist uh, by trade, I kind of agreed, right? Mm. I felt that hey, you're right. You know, the, the, it, is, it is time. The arguments against TV debates just don't feel authentic anymore. And I took that thought back to David, and, and to his great credit, he agreed. But we wanted to make sure it was done well and that it was done fairly. And so what followed was a long process of negotiation with ourselves, with the Lib Dem team. The two Lib Dem negotiators, of course, I ended up working with in Downing Street, a bit <laughs> further down the road, and with, and with our sort of labor oppos as well. And it was a bizarre experience, but we ended up actually getting it in the right place. But there was a lot of internal concern, uh, not just about whether or not, you know, we would be able to, you know, David would be able to kind of tell the right story in those debates. Cause it's a very, it's a very peculiar environment, right? A TV debate for a, for a politician. But also there was a concern that it would just gift Nick Clegg in particular a platform 
that he wouldn't have otherwise. That we were elevating up, you know, the, the you know the, the Lib Dems to a position uh, that was you know advantageous for them and not for us. And of course, after the first debate, you'll remember that's exactly that was exactly mm. the narrative, right? Because it was perceived that that Nick Clegg had somehow won. And then there was that extraordinary period, not a very long period, but an extraordinary few days. I remember a, I might have this slightly wrong, but I remember an evening standard front page where they'd run some polling after the, after the first debate that suggested that Nick Clegg was as popular as Winston Churchill, right? <laughs> I think I remember. <laughs> and if I'm honest, that did cause me to think, oh my God, what have I done? But actually... My my core belief about it was, A, I thought David did pretty well. Uh, there were some teething problems, in truth, not looking down the camera enough, some technical stuff that didn't work quite well enough. We allowed Nick to sort of, you know, get very personal with the audience in a way that David didn't do immediately, which is now, you know, de rigueur for anyone doing a mm. TV debate. Oh, thanks, John, for that question. You know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do, perhaps do enough of that at the start, and the... And also what I perhaps didn't give enough thought to was, of course, Nick Clegg was going to be the more interesting story, right? Because mm. of course he was from, from a journalistic point of view. But by the second debate, you know, uh, uh, or before the second debate, in truth, I was absolutely convinced that this was going to work out well for us because I wasn't focused on Lib Dem and the Lib Dem so much. I felt that that would fade away and it did. What I was focused on was the fact that the TV debates totally disabled Labour's uh, campaign. Right, because Labour's campaign was focused on the economy, do the old school, golden brown, proven playbook, press conferences in the morning, scare the living daylights out of everyone on the economy, dominate the agenda through the day and never let the Tories kind of get out of their box, if you like. Just keep them in that position through fairly old school means. And the TV debates blew that apart. And of course, people were able to judge Gordon against David as well. And we, you know, we won the debates ultimately. You know, across the three, we absolutely emerged as as as, as winners just in that environment. But I think it also gave us a platform for people to get to know David better. Mm. Right, I re I really do, and um, and I'm delighted that they're you know that they're that they're here to stay. You know, there was a period I think when Theresa was Prime Minister where it felt it looked like we were going backwards on them again. Yeah which I thought was a terrible mistake. You know, they should be part of the British political landscape and I'm delighted that they are and I'm delighted to have played a very, very small part in, uh, in, in the early days of it. What do you think the other unintended consequences of it were? I mean, from my junior aspect, I remember it's sort of the amount of time that had to be dedicated to prep. So normally in an election campaign, yeah, you've got the candidate out at maybe like four or five stops a day around the country. Well, of course, mm. you know, with that, taking place you know that that on the day and the day before like loads of time was taken out for um for preparation time were there any other unintended consequences that you thought about in hindsight no the time thing was was huge but i think we kind of we kind of there's a lot of prep time right there's an awful lot of preparation time and the traveling time obviously the debates you know were quite rightly spread across the country uh, and it did you know, although I think net positive in terms of what it did to Labour's campaign in the way that I just described, it definitely limited our campaign as well, right? Mm. Because the narrative, the story, the kind of, you know, the, the arc, if you like, of the campaign narrative from a journalistic point of view, they were the staging, the debates were the staging posts, right? So everything was either leading up to or coming off the back of. 
And so that made it quite difficult for all of us to be able to then create those little moments in a campaign where you hope to kind of dictate the agenda on a particular theme. And that, that made it more difficult. We had to rethink all that. But, you know, but as I say, I definitely land on net positive mm. be, because even, even though you, you, it's a combative, slightly inauthentic environment in a TV studio, you, you kind of see some truth there as well. You know, you really do see some truth. And that, I think, is just, you know, gold dust in, a, mm. in an election campaign. Connection, right? Connection. Totally. And to go to the start of your career from that, you began at the Basildon Echo. What was your yes. first byline? My first byline was a check presentation, as as it as it would be for anyone who ever worked on a local newspaper. You know, um, <laughs> can you remember what the check uh, check presentation was for? Uh, okay, it was a local scout. I do remember though that it was uh, that it was David Amos, uh, who was the MP for Basildon at the time. Oh and, gosh, yeah. uh, obviously, obviously, tragically, um, you know, it, tragic the way that his life ended. Uh, I he was the first politician I ever spoke to. Uh, certainly the first politician I ever interviewed and could not have been, I have to tell you, could not have been more charming, engaging and helpful, right? So I'm yeah. a cub reporter on his local paper. I am about as far down the ladder, you know, uh, uh, certainly from a media perspective uh, uh, that David Amos would ever have said, and he could not have been more encouraging. And I met him quite a few times subsequently because he went on obviously to become an MP in South End, which is a, also covered by the Echo to me personally could not have been more helpful yeah but no the early the early days the early days of the echo were yeah i mean i i was a general news reporter so did a bit of local politics did a, sat in more council meetings as healthy for any individual uh, district and county but then quite quickly i you know i became quite focused on on showbiz and entertainment that was actually my that was actually my uh, my specialism and that's what i was you know i had a, I had a column on the local paper that was a showbiz column, and then I, and that sort of you know helped me get up onto up onto the sun. And so, what was your sort of big break to to get there? How how did that come about? Well, I was um, uh, back in those days. You had to do your indentures, so you're an apprentice effectively. So you, I went off for six months to be trained down in Hastings, and then you come back and then you do your apprenticeship. And as soon as I I, I got my qualification, my indentures, as they were called. Uh, that was it for me. I was very, very clear that uh, that I wanted to get to London, and so uh, I managed to get myself a couple of shifts on the Mirror, actually, and then uh, and then through a friend who was already shifting on the Sun, I was able to get uh, find out that they were looking for temporary help on the Bazaar column, uh, which was then being edited by Gary Bushell, and I uh, and I did a few shifts and uh, did a half decent job, and then that led led to a short term contract, and then that led to a staff job. You know, by the time I was uh, 21. I, I guess there's two parts to this question. What, when did you first think you wanted to be a journalist? And, and when did you first think showbiz is kind of where I really want to go for my first kind of big job? Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to join the Air Force. That was the plan. My dad mm -hmm. was in the Air Force and my older brother was in the Air Force. And I was, a, I was an air cadet and I, was, uh, I wanted to be a, you know, I wanted to be the first commissioned officer in my family was my plan. And I uh, and I was well on track actually. I was I was well down the road towards towards doing that. Um, and then, as often happens in life, I met a girl, and uh, and her mum, who was an amazing lady, was the editor's secretary on the Evening Echo. And she and she said, "Well, look, why don't you come in and do?" As I think it's Easter. She said, "Why don't you come in and and have a look at the paper and do a few shifts?" 
And it's a, uh, you know, life is these little sliding door moments, isn't it? And I just, I just utterly fell in love with it almost on day one. So the Echo was a, you know, a local paper with a with the editorial floor on the first floor, and then underneath it were the printing presses, right? So using it was still typewriters. I'm that old, Jimmy. So I, I, you know, you'd write you'd write up your David Amos press you know, check presentation. The paper would be ripped out of the typewriter. It would be taken over to a to a, a sub, and if he if they'd do his marks on it, or you'd be told to go off and do it again, which was probably the case actually. And there'd be two carbon copies, you know, and then that would go off to a typesetter and or to a, to a proper sub, and from the sub it would go to a typesetter, and then you're down, and then I was, you know, taken downstairs these rickety staircase, and there's this what seemed an enormous printing press, and then you, the thing starts up and humming and running, and the whole building shaking, and then a newspaper comes out the end of it with your name on it, and then there's the and then there's the smell of the place as well, right? It's got a newspaper a newspaper printing hall has got a particular smell that I just totally fell in love with uh, and that was it really i just um i just decided right this this is it so i went i was still at school i was uh, 16 at that stage i wanted to join immediately as soon as i finished my uh my o levels they wouldn't let me they forced me to do my a levels which i did uh university was never a consideration for me and uh as soon as i was uh, 18 they called me back in and kept their word kept the word for two years and said right here's 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 your job Amazing. Uh, And yeah, it was fantastic. As for the showbiz bit, and that was much later, actually, I just, um, uh, I've always, always had an interest. I used to read the bizarre column as a, as a kid, right? My family were sun readers. So the bizarre column, which was then edited by John Blake was, was always, has always been a bit of part of my life. And I, and I, and I enjoyed it as a reader. I had that, I took that thought when I became a journalist in the Echo and created my own little frankly rather ridiculous version of bizarre on the evening echo called straight up what uh and uh, <laughs> and so i was already a showbiz columnist when i went to work at the sun and so that it just it just became the became the kind of area that i was interested in and it was full of fascinating people you know entertainment obviously right is yeah. full of fascinating people but not just the people on you know you know in the front of the curtains the people behind the curtain that i found fascinating Right, the publicists, the agents, the kind of you know the the, the lawyers, even right, and the, and the, and the people that are pulling all the strings behind the scenes, I found fascinating, and and the sort of deal making that sat behind show business, I found fascinating, and this was in a at a time, I'm very lucky, you know, that this was at a time when all that was exploding. Right, the mm-hmm. kind of commercialization. I mean, showbiz has always been commercialized, but but the the sort of ex, the turning of show business into or the or the accent on the business bit was absolutely exploding in my time as a journalist. You know, like Planet Hollywood. I don't know if you remember Planet Hollywood mm-hmm. in the now you know dim in, in people's memories, but at the time, here you had a restaurant train chain, a business, right, a a, a commercial enterprise that was fueled on on pr purely on pr you know the burgers were all right but they weren't that great yeah. it was all about the pr sylvester stallone arnold schwarzenegger you know the, the really big names in hollywood were shareholders in this restaurant train and so when uh, planet hollywood in london opened it was huge news front page news that had never happened before where showbiz had suddenly moved into a different part of the news agenda and and for a tabloid paper like the Sun, it was you know that was absolutely the place where you wanted to be. 
it was uh, it was it was fascinating. I'm always really struck by the business in show business, right? Like it's you know it's got it literally in the name. Can you talk to us about a kind of particular deal that you know you talked about the deal making there? Can you can you let us in on a, a on a particularly memorable deal that you struck, perhaps when you were editor or something like that? Well, Planet Hollywood deals were regular. There were there were a number of them, right? Every time they opened a restaurant, there was a deal to be done around those. So I did I did a lot of those and did a lot of traveling as a result. You know, you'd be flown out, you know, first class to Miami to interview these celebrities purely so that the branding of Planet Hollywood would land well, you know, in the in the sun. They wanted that, and and you know that was a that was a deal to be done. But um, you know, I was also you know, there for the sort of rise of the Beckhams, mm. uh, Victoria and David, you know, I knew her pretty well. Uh, I knew him a bit as well, both very sharp, commercial from the get-go um, individuals, knew what they were doing, understood the power of brand, understood what the sun could do for them. Uh, you know, and when they got engaged, um, you know, I uh, as peculiar as it sounds, you know, I got a call from their publicist who I knew very well to say, look, this is going to happen. They are going to get engaged at this hotel. Uh, they'd like you to come along and uh, and break the story, right? You'll get the exclusive interview. You'll get the picture of the ring. Uh, and then they'll go outside and do a photo call for the, rest of, for the rest of the media. So it's a bit of an odd thing to be invited to someone's engagement, but that's exactly what happened. And, and of course, that wasn't for free. Yeah, that wasn't for free because this was around the time which people might remember of the explosion of Hello Magazine yeah. and OK Magazine, where celebrities were, you know, actively going out and starting an auction uh, and and pocketing very large sums of money for sharing particular moments in their life. In this case, the engagement, and that's exactly what we did. I went up with my photographer, or with our photographer Dave Hogan, great bloke. Did so many, so many trips and, and so many jobs with Dave, uh, uh, and we uh, and we yeah, went into their hotel suite, and uh, and they announced their engagement to us, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> the first person you call, Andy yeah. Colson. What's what's the? How does the negotiation for something like that? To focus on the business side of that, like how does it? Mm. You know, do you sit down with the editor and think, right? Well, this is going to be our top line year because that. I mean, that must have been the story of the. Easy story of the year, probably only sub to the wedding. I imagine. Like, how does that sort of? Yeah, no, process it was, it was work? huge. It was it was huge. It was a splash, and it was a you know uh, four pages inside. I think you know it was it was very significant, and it wasn't just significant in newspapers, by the way. It was all over the TV as well. Mm. Uh, well, the deal is pretty straightforward. You know, I had a very good relationship with the publicist, a guy called Alan Edwards, uh, who's still uh, top of his game now. And you know, Alan said, "Look, this is a possibility." This is what they want. I can't remember now. So long ago, what the what the numbers were, but pretty chunky. I would have thought. You know, people newspapers were paying a fair amount of money for that kind of access back then, far more than they pay now. Of course, mm. the whole thing has changed now. You know, the, the, it's 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 uh, driven by technology. Well, largely, uh, you know, the, the the business of of showbiz journalism is is transformed now. But yeah, we you know, I would I would have gone into the editor and said, look, I think this is what it's going to cost, but I think it's worth it. He'd listen. And uh, and he'd say yes or no on this occasion. He said yes, and uh, and off and off we went. Amazing. And how do you think social media has changed it? Because I was thinking that now you would spend time sort of prepping the social media posts, and all of that mm. would be the sort of you know kind of way that it would be done. You know, ha- yeah, celebrity show business news is a completely different beast now. 
Yeah, the, yeah, the, the power has completely shifted, obviously. Um, I mean, the internet was the first staging post of that, uh, where, you know, celebrities started to realize that they could they could uh, build and develop their their own brand online. Uh, interestingly, there was a period just on the Beckhams. You know, I after I left, I left the Sun. Uh, I was a number. I, I ended up being the number three on the Sun. I left the Sun, then go and work for Rupert Murdoch on all his website business, the sort of first mm-hmm. sort of dot com boom. And one of the projects that I was working on was was to was to go into business with Victoria Beckham. Right, was to build her commercial website. She, at that stage, wanted it to be around. It wasn't around high fashion. It was around, she wanted to be the sort of Martha Stewart, minus the criminal conviction. She wanted to be the Martha Stewart of uh, of Britain, right? She wanted the homeware, kids wear. She wanted to do the whole kit and caboodle under the Victoria Beckham brand. And we were going to go into business with her. I was going to build that business with her. And that would be, you know, in partnership with News, my employer. Uh, we developed the plan. She was up for it. Got quite a way down the road, and then and the business decided actually we're not we're not going to do that. We don't want you to do that, Andy. Go and be the deputy editor of the News of the World. Another sliding door uh, moment for me. But no, more generally on the on the shift, internet first staging post, but then the birth of social media transformed it and totally put the power into the celebrities' hands. Uh, and that's where we are now, right? I mean, if you've got to be a showbiz journalist now on a national newspaper, is is I, I hesitate to say that you're redundant, but it's a it's a totally different job now because that's yeah. not where the power is. You know, they don't need you in the same way as they perhaps felt that they used to. There is no deal to be done, really. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure that's not true uh, entirely. I'm sure that there are the sun still, for you know, as an example, still of course still carries some weight, and mm. you, you you'd want to be there. But frankly, as compared to the kind of Instagram following that you could build you know the way that you can utilize social media now is is far more impactful and direct it's all about control right and uh, and that gives you it gives you total control and gives you the ability to you know commercialize it directly exactly exactly no well i want to come on to the future of media more broadly as well not just the showbiz side of the um towards the end but one of the things that you now do is that you run a, a podcast called crisis what crisis which interviews mm. people on when they've had crisis moments you mm. of course had one of the big personal crises that almost anyone can go through which is being sent to prison and certainly somebody that from your background is not very common to happen what mm. were your thoughts when you were sent to prison it just must be the most shocking dehabilitating moment of your life uh yes it was not a good day um i mean the first thing i'd the first thing i'd say just sort of and this is related to you know to to the pod is that the thing that the pod has given me more than anything else and i had it already right and this because it's 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 one of the things that i would lean on very heavily throughout the sort of five years of my dramas but the pod has reinforced it and that's the importance of perspective Right, you know, you just you just said there, you know, perfectly reasonably because I think a lot of people would say the same. Uh, that going to prison is one of the third worst things that can happen to you. It's not. Right, it's not. Is the first thing. Right, it's, it's you, you. I would not recommend it. It is absolutely something that I wish hadn't happened. Uh, uh, not just for me, but also for the other people that are impacted by it. Um, you know, my family, obviously. Uh, most importantly. But it's not the worst thing that can happen to you, all right? It's another place. And this is what I said to myself when I arrived in Belmarsh. I spent two months in a high-security prison and then three months in a, just under three months in, a, in, a, um, in an open prison. Uh, 
very different experiences, I can tell you. Uh, what I said to myself the first time that that door closed on the, you know, on the, on the cell in Belmarsh uh, was this is just another place, right? It's not a place I, I want to be in. It's not a pleasant place, but it's just another place. So let's just, you know, get through it day by day. Understand, um, this is another lesson that's been reinforced uh, regularly on the pod. Understand what you've got control of and what you don't have and concentrate on the things that you do have control of, which is, you know, perhaps to some a pretty obvious thing to say, but that is a rule that I live my life by. And, uh, and, and I certainly did that when I was, when I was, um, when I was in prison. But it was, um, you know, it was, a bit, I think because I'm a journalist, um, you know, it was a combination of two things, really, prison. It was uh, mind-numbingly dull. Uh, it's as unproductive a place as exists anywhere. And I'm, that, that, that I struggle with because I'm, you know, I've only ever worked. I, I love work. <laughs> it's very important to me. Being productive is very important to me. It's, you know, it's quite aside from the practical advantages of it. It is, uh, is, is meaningful without getting too airy-fairy, yeah. Jimmy. Uh, you know, it's where, it's where I get a lot of meaning. And, uh, and not being able to work is very difficult. I find very difficult. And I'd, and I'd not been able to work, by the way, for years by that stage. Mm. You know the process that I was, uh, I found myself in because it was so public uh, and so you know kind of multifaceted. It rendered me unemployable for you know a, a fair old chunk. And bear in mind, I'm in my early forties at this stage, and those should be very, very productive years, right? They should, I should have been absolutely firing on all cylinders at that stage of my life, and then suddenly you're you know very much on the outside and and not able to and not able to kind of you know, move your life forward. In fact, my life was going backwards pretty rapidly. Uh, I found that very, I found that very difficult. But I focused on it. You know, I have to say the main reason is, is my family, my wife, Eloise, and my sons uh, were just, you know, just unbelievably supportive and, 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 and got me through. That was the first and foremost. But also, uh, I fixed on the long term. I, I never at any point thought, well, you're never going to be able to work again, Andy. I knew that I would. I just didn't know when. And... It's a really good point you say about it's like there are far worse things that happen. And actually, if you listen to your podcast and you listen to some of the crises that people go through, like you realize just how tough life can be for people at various points. But mm. in terms of the career and work, as you touch on there, there must have been a bit of you thinking, is anyone going to employ me again? Is anyone going to, you know, how, how did you yeah. think about rebuilding that side of it i mean you've talked you've done a very good interview on your own podcast where you've been interviewed and you talk a lot about the sort of family and the personal side so if people want to listen to that they can but to stick on yes. the work side how how did you sort of approach that well you know i hope this doesn't come off the wrong way because you know the backdrop to this of course is also a tremendous amount of mistakes made professionally Right, and I'm, whenever I talk about, particularly when I talk about the news of the world, I will always start with an apology because the mistakes I made, although I don't, you know, believe that I broke the law, that was my position in court, was my position now. I certainly made a shed load of mistakes. I was in charge, right? Then it, it, it very clearly went very badly wrong. So, uh, you know, that's the first and, uh, in, a, in a way, the most important thing to say. Um, but I, you know, I. Like I say, I hope this doesn't come off in the wrong way. I never lost sight of, and again, 
I hope this doesn't get poetic either or too philosophical, but I never lost sight of who I am. Right? And I knew that although I'd made mistakes, some of them very significant, the story that was played out over a number of years, the things that were being said, you know, what I'm seeing said about myself in newspapers and on television, not without irony, given the jobs that I've done previously, right? Not without irony. So this is not a complaint. I just knew that wasn't me, right? And I I knew that, uh, you know, this process was not going to result in a lobotomy, right? I was not going to have my brain removed or fundamentally altered in some way, and that I would therefore not be able to be capable of the kind of things that I've done during the course of my career, um, the good, right, as well as the as well as the mistakes, um, and I knew that I would be able to deliver some value, right, that I could be of use. Uh, uh, I, I never lost sight of that. I always thought I'd have something to offer, and and that's what I focused on. Uh, even in prison, I focused on that. So in Belmarsh, it was impossible to work because the system was broken when I was in prison. We were between governors, and it was utterly dysfunctional. Just you know, spent most of the day you know locked behind a door, utterly useless process. Um, but when I got to open prison, I I got a job. They put me to work. I was a education orderly, and I was running uh, Dragon's Den sessions with inmates who were about to leave prison after serving very long sentences. I was doing CV, I was helping people write CVs. I was doing mock job interviews, and I, I'm not going to try and claim that it was the most rewarding job I've ever had in my life. But I tell you what, it wasn't far off. It was really, really interesting because it caused me to have a lot of conversations with people who uh, who'd gone through you know, uh, very, very long sentences and who are now trying to answer that exact question, Jimmy, that you've just asked me. They're trying to find that answer themselves. Uh, how do I find purpose in life? Will I ever be of use again? And in practical terms, will I ever be able to kind of, you know, earn, and take part again? And for a lot of people, and I see the difference that are in prison, they may never have, you know, they may never have had that sense of worth even before going to prison. And how you, what did you do? So you were helping write CVs and yeah, you know, because often one of the things that gets pointed out by people that are in prison is they can be quite entrepreneurial in terms of the way they, they approach things, not always legal, but it's a very interesting space in terms of that. How did you help people on that journey of, of rehabilitation when it came to work? The entrepreneurial, uh, the use of the word entrepreneurial is absolutely spot on, right? So never never mind when I got to open prison. When I was in Belmarsh, um, at that time, um, there were a tremendous number of young, uh, mostly black men who were serving sentences uh, uh, longer than they'd been alive, right? <laughs> And, and some of them for extremely, obviously, extremely serious crimes. And there was a, and it's, it still exists as a, um, uh, uh, as a, as a sort of, you know, criminal definition now, but joint enterprise, which is, you know, it puts, it puts simply being at the scene of a crime and therefore being deemed culpable, right? So that was, there were, there was a tremendous kind of trend of those convictions in the time that I was in prison. And I got talking to, uh, you know, one of those lads as we were walking around the prison yard, anti-clockwise, which interestingly happens in every prison yard Why is in that? the world. I have no idea. Never got a straight answer. Curious though, isn't it? Um, and 
uh, and he was a uh, drug dealer. Um, he was uh, sort of uh, early 20s. And Jimmy, he was whip smart, right? Whip smart, uh, eloquent, and able to – and I got him talking about his business, his business as a drug dealer. And he was speaking like an entrepreneur, Jimmy, right? His grasp of the numbers, his grasp of the importance of kind of marketing, the importance of br- – he actually used the word brand, yeah, in the context of the uh, clearly uh, menacing, frankly, violent kind of uh, 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 image that he had to portray. And I suspect it wasn't just an image, right? He followed through on his br- – his brand was authentic, if I can put it that way, Yeah. Uh, but he talked about it in a in a you know in a with a with a business perspective. This is these are the things that obviously it was also loaded with. You know, I I had to do it. I had no choice. Mm-hmm. I looked after my family. I said, and, and and the thing in prison is you don't ask those questions because you you know you let people talk. Right? I'm not there to judge. So uh, how accurate and what the truth is? Who who knows? What is undeniably true is that he was a drug dealer and that he was now serving a very long sentence in prison. And he. Um, it sort of it caused me to think that prison must is obviously sort of full of those young men who have this kind of entrepreneurial spirit that has obviously just gone off in the wrong direction. And then when I'm the wrong sliding prison, door moments, as it were, the wrong sliding door moment, right? And uh, by the way, that's the, we can't just it's too easy to say you know poor them. Although I think in some circumstances that might, should be the start of the conversation, but you can't say that because people—you you got to stand by your own behaviour, you got to mm. stand by your own judgments, right? And, and 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 that's, you know, that's a slightly separate issue. But when I get to, when I get to open prison, I'm then talking to uh, uh, older men who, at the end of those kind of sentences, who are now thinking about their future, and you know what? They've still got the entrepreneurial eye. They are still, when I'm doing those Dragon's Den presentations, they are still thinking about themselves through that kind of, you know, entrepreneurial lens. And, I, and if we can capture that, if that can, there are very, very good people, devoted, dedicated people in the prison system who are focused on doing this. I'm not sure that they're necessarily supported enough right now um, or, or frankly ever have been. There should be more of that in my view. Um but there's something to harness there. Right? Work is everything, in my view, in terms of when we're looking at criminal justice. Work is everything. You've got to give people purpose. You've got to keep them connected with their families, which I think is also critical, and you've got to provide belief and purpose uh, 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 from, a, from an employment perspective. And the truth is, those people that were leaving um, Hosley Bay, which is the open prison that I was in, uh, I had a chat with one of the senior uh, prison officers about exactly this, and he said the problem is, he said we do all this work here, he said, and we have we have no contact with them thereafter. He said the only time we ever find out uh, what happens next is when it goes wrong and we see them again back in prison. We never find out the success stories. We never find we never hear about what worked and what didn't work, and that's bonkers, right? Because mm-hmm. if you look at it from a business point of view, understanding what works and what doesn't work is a fundamental part of the process. We don't have that in the prison system. We never know. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's not like going back to your old school and giving a speech, is it, I suppose? Um, what, um, <laughs> what, were there any sort of Dragon's Den stories, pictures that, that really stick out in your mind from that period? 
Well, there were a fair number that were focused on, you know, I suppose what you might call sort of, you know, uh, 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 unsurprising themes. So there were there were a number of kind of, you know, potential gym openings. Mm-hmm. One guy wanted to start a security, a private security company, uh, but there are also a couple of retail ideas. You know, uh, one of the one of the prisoners wanted to try and uh, start a bookshop and had a specific idea around that, which was quite interesting. Um, but they were all. You know, they, they. I, I, I was concerned that they would engage with it. If I was, if I'm honest, you know, I was, I was, I thought they might just sort of play at it. It's a box that they're going to tick because you have to do the course to be able to get out, right? So I was concerned that it was just going to be, you know, a bit tick boxy and mm-hmm. a waste of time. It wasn't at all. They were really engaged in it. They got, they got excited by it. Did you? I remember one of the bits in Jeffrey Archer's book about him, people approaching him to help write letters home and, and things like that. Did you get prisoners kind of approaching you about, you know, sort of wanting help with that kind of thing? Was that something that took place on a pretty regular basis? I, I imagine so. In in the prison context, you yeah. can help while they were there. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. No, but the CV writing in particular. And, and also this kind of, you know, which is a difficult thing. Um, it was easy for me. Because uh, I, there was no option for me to come out of prison and pretend or somehow create uh, a you know professional position for myself that that, that somehow pretended that what ha- happened hadn't happened because uh, it was so public and, and I wouldn't do that anyway. It was it's, it, it did happen, and you know I'm, I'm a fundamental believer in accepting your truth, and I have. Uh, it, it, you know, it is what it is, um, but there were a lot of lads who didn't want to do that. You know, there were some lads who wanted to change their name. Did I think that was a good idea? There were some people who, who wanted to, you know, because this is, a, this is a complicated area still in employment. There are lots of good mm. people out there taking people on uh, with criminal convictions. And this whole issue of whether or not you should declare your conviction, you know, uh, is, a, is a, obviously, as you know, is, is, a, is a subject that's still pretty complicated for ex-offenders. Um, your, your- my view was always... My view was always, which was unpopular with some of the people that I spoke to, you know, you gotta you gotta accept who you are and 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 accept what's happened and get on with it. Because my view is as uh, sitting on the other side of that as an employer, I think that's more attractive than having someone on your books for six months and then discovering later that they've that they've got something in their past. But that is a personal view. Uh, there are very good uh, reasons why that might not be right for other people. And uh, and I always caveated it as, uh, as i've caveated it now i think it's a very personal decision um and your interview with james timpson who of timpson's mm. is um one of the many excellent interviews on crisis what crisis um uh, who's done phenomenal work in it has what you've now built a, a successful business as, as well as podcast has what you look for in people changed as a result of being in prison in terms of the skills and the attitude that people have? That's a great question. Do you know, I think it has. Um, you know, I, I think because of my own experience, because of the business that we are, you know, we're strategic advisors to business leaders. Um, I like people with a story. You know, I like experience. I like bumps in the road. I like people who know what the difficult looks like and who, who've lived it and experienced it. And, and you might say, well, you would, wouldn't you? Because of what happened to me. But, you know, I like that change in me. Mm. Uh, and I like that we do that as a business. Um, 
because I'm a I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a passionate believer that your failures are as value valuable as your successes. You know that's what it is to be. Uh, again, we're slipping off to philosophy here, Jimmy. If we're not careful, but I, uh, that, you know that is what it is to be human, right? Is to is to learn from your mistakes and develop and evolve and and change. And I'm a very very different person fundamentally the same person but i'm also professionally a very different person at 55 than i was uh, you know when i was standing in victoria beckham's bedroom listening to her announce her engagement right i've changed a tremendous amount during that period of time and i and i love all i love all that experience i think it's you know that's what i look for in people that i now work with and um you know i'm able to do that with the with the team that we uh, the brilliant team that I'm lucky enough to kind of work with uh, on a sort of permanent basis, if you like, the employed team of Coulson Partners. But we also have this model that allows us to work with people as consultants who come in according to the project. And all of those people have got, you know, uh, rich uh, and, 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 I, and I think really useful experience to deploy. If you could go back to that you know, hotel room in Victoria Beckham's uh, suite, what, would, what advice would you give a younger Andy now? Look, I think this is it's a, it's a good question, but uh, and this is not a dodge because I will answer it. But I think it's a very dangerous thing to try and live your life through the rearview mirror, right? I think it's um, because I could I could absolutely say to twenty five year old my twenty five year old self, get out of newspapers. You're going or, or 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 perhaps you're going to have an opportunity in five years time, which I did to leave newspapers with a brilliant idea and go and raise some money and start a business uh, uh, that was a, that was a, you know, uh, uh, that would, would have been an early version of TMZ, which was my plan. Right. And then instead of what's, what's TM, TMZ is, for those, it's a celebrity, celebrity sort of a website. It was, um, you know, it was a, it was an idea along those, along those lines. Um, I could very easily say to, you know, my 25 year old self, that's what's going to happen. That's what you must do. Because, of course, that would have avoided the whole mm. news of the world drama and everything that came after. But that's a, that's a hopeless way to live your life and a pointless way to live your life. Why would, you know, and I'm, yes, I had a terrible time for five years of my life. I would not recommend it. I wish it hadn't happened. It was painful and difficult. But I'm a better person for it. And uh, I'm, I'm very clear on that. And I'm very clear that I'm a happier person as a result. So who knows, right? If I go back 25 year old, my 25 year old self, send him off in that direction, who knows where that would have taken me? Mm. Or indeed, if things hadn't happened in the way that they did at the news of the world, where would that have happened? I probably would have ended up back on the sun, which is the paper where I was, you know, uh, where I spent most of my career paper where I really wanted to be. Who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe I would have ended up editor of the sun. What would that have done to me? Who would I have been after as a result of that? Who knows? Right. Certainly, no guarantee that I would be either as clear-sighted or as happy as I am now. That's for sure. Now I'm going to answer your question. Uh, I think what I would say to myself at that age is just remember that every day is an integrity test because mm. it is. That, and just remember who you, remember who you are. Remember what your values are. Don't lose sight of those values, and be your own man. Uh, uh, I think is uh, I think is the core of it. And what advice would you give for younger journalists starting out now? They're trying to make their way in it. You know, it's changed dramatically. Mm. What advice would mm. you give to a 18-year-old person looking to make it in the modern era? Well, I still think it's an amazing place to be, journalism. Very different now, very different landscape. And, and of course, the route through is so, con- is so different now 
in some ways much more difficult, in other ways much easier because you have access to platforms now in a way. If you've got a great idea, you can get out and um, make a you know have a stab at building it. Podcasting mm-hmm. is a is a you know is an amazing medium for to do to do exactly that. So in, in some ways it's it's more much more exciting and more open than it's ever been. But it's also commercially challenging, right? I mean, particularly if you want to follow the the newspaper route right now. You know, newspaper sales were falling but were still very high during my time. They've obviously, you know, that's changed pretty dramatically. They're much more resilient than people give them credit for. Mm. You know, even when I was in newspapers, people were predicting that the number of national newspapers in this country would would uh, squeeze and would fall pretty dramatically. That hasn't happened, right? They're very resilient um, um, kind of uh, products. Um, and I think there's amazing quality in some of our uh, newspapers here. Thank God for them. I think the Times in particular, my favorite newspaper is, is uh, you know, to read and to use is just a fantastic product across a whole bunch of different platforms. But I think in terms of where would I now, A, would I encourage people to go into journalism? Yes. If they are, if they have a proper interest in people, that's the key to it. You've got to be fascinated by, by, by people in whatever area you want to focus on. Uh, and I would think, uh, you know, I've got three sons, right? Uh, uh, none of them have shown an interest in journalism. Uh, yeah, possibly because they saw and I don't know. They're equally, they're equally, I don't have much of an interest in becoming, uh, getting involved in politics, possibly for the same reason. I don't know. Uh, but I, uh, were one of them to say to me, I, you know, I, I, I fancy journalism. Uh, would I direct them towards a newspaper? I think I still would, uh, or a newspaper company. I think I still would because I think it provides, you just get so much incoming, right? It's such a, your muscle memory is so better exercised in that kind of environment, in my view. It's a bit like politics, right? That's the joy of politics, particularly on the advisor side, is that you've just got so much of it. Yeah. It's an incredible kind of laboratory. And I think, um, I think you know, my old profession, I think, is still, still provides that. Um, and look, I, I, we're going to have to get you back on a second time to talk about the future of the media more broadly because we wanted to do all that in the future of podcasting and we've run out of time. But the one, the one thing that I really did want to ask you about is like one of the things that I think can help people with sliding door moments is the sources of information that that people read right um and it's like one of the reasons when we had rishi sunak on the podcast i asked him like yeah what does as he was then chance the exchequer what do you read and he gave i mean a list as long as your arm of all these economy blogs and so on but i think to myself if people can hear those things and someone's an aspiring economist or whatever and then use those that is you know that is the job of this podcast you talked about reading the Times. What sources of information do you use now to kind of stay abreast of everything? Yeah, well, obviously, I'm a podcast fan. So I listen to your podcast, Jimmy, <laughs> obviously. No, I, th- I love podcasting because I think it's the, uh, it's the reasonableness of it, right? I lo- that's why I love it. It is a place where you can have, as we are now, um, having a conversation. I don't feel like I'm being interviewed, right? It's a, It's not combative. It's not... Uh, it's not gender driven. It's mm. a reasonable environment. I know that there are podcasts that perhaps take a, a, a slightly different approach. I understand that. But the, the podcasts that I love are where you feel like you're in a conversation. And there are so many great podcasts that can give you that and at the same time provide you with some expertise. If you were interested in the, 
you know, uh, how finance works, right? You go listen to the Money Maze podcast, mm -hmm. which is just a brilliant environment for not just actually interesting conversations with very influential people. You'll learn a lot. Uh, so I try and I try and do as much of that as I possibly can because I'm still learning. That's the old cliche. Every day's a school day. I totally I totally agree with that. I you know I'm I'm absolutely still on receive. Um, uh, but in terms of in terms of uh, more sort of traditional media, you know, I'm your taste changes your as the as as your life changes and as your job requirements change. So obviously, I need to be on top of business. Um, I need to be you know I need to be you know I need to have a, a good grip on on what's happening politically. We don't do public affairs work per se, but I, I love to give a, a view on politics mm. and that obviously requires a fair amount of reading. That's become really interesting. So Politico didn't exist in my day. Yeah. You know, I think it's brilliant, right? What a brilliant digest, brilliantly written, brilliantly pitched, really useful, right? Really useful from a practical perspective. Um, so if politics is your thing, you've got to, you've got to engage. Do you think um, politics that kind of content? Do you think Politico is more influential than the Today program now? Do you know what? I don't know enough about its numbers to be able to say, give you an answer that's sort of scientifically proven. But my instinct would be yes. My instinct would be yes. Because it's set, cause of, because the genius of Politico is it sets you up for the day. Mm. Right? It sets you up for the day. And that is one of the, that is one of the, the kind of purposes of the Today program. Uh, but it does it more efficiently than radio can obviously possibly do. I find it. I mm. find it really. If if usefulness is one of the, you know, kind of as I say, purposes of the Today program, then Politico, I'd say, is more useful to me. Um, but that's not the only purpose of the Today program. The Today program no. at its best when when Nick when Nick Robinson, you know, is able to, and I'm a I'm a fan of Nick's, um, you know. He's, an, he's got an astonishing resilience story. He was on the podcast, actually. I don't know if you know Nick's story, but if you don't go and please, you know, have a listen because it's worth listening to. He's a, he had a terrible trauma at the, in his, you know, in his, in his uh, much younger days uh, that, he, that he came through. Um, I think he's a terrific journalist. And when Nick is asking the right questions, it's, it's deeply, deeply valuable. That truth bit that we talked about right at the beginning with the TV debates, you know, a great journalist will get to that, you know, with just the, you know, the correctly phrased question. And occasionally, by the way, the right silence, the power of silence. On radio, yeah. In, in radio is so, is so understated and Nick is the master of it. Totally. Um, that's a, a brilliant finish, Andy. Thanks so much for coming on. It's amazing to take in all your wisdom of what's changed over the years and to hear more about your, your story and what you're up to now. So thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.